0: By visiting This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your
1: mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something.
0: It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. Well... We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello, and welcome back, everyone, to Primitive Culture at Trek FM podcast. All about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm back. Tony Black is back in the house. Uh, <laughs> in back the Star- in black back in black there we go yeah um that you know if we didn't have a better title probably lined up Duncan, for this episode that might have to be it um it could it could (laughs) (laughs) do you i don't know i don't know if you always wear black because uh we've only actually met
1: in person once and uh whenever we speak on skype the little image of you is is you in a black suit with a black tie so i kind of imagine you are always wearing black but uh I'll leave that to the listeners' imaginations.
0: I think, I, think, I think people should, like, assume, yeah, I am, even if I'm yeah. not. And then if you ever do <laughs> Skype with me, you'll see that the Skype picture of me is not very indicative of real life. I'm about no. three stone lighter.
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fair enough, I think.
0: You know? Anyway, joining me, as you may have guessed already, is uh, Duncan Barrett, the, uh, the rock, who has, um, I'd say, kept the ship going without me, but you don't, you guys, and Clara, Clara Cook, our other host, who isn't with us tonight, haven't needed me to keep the ship going. The good uh, ship USS Primitive Culture has been sailing in a mighty fine way, I think, over the last few months.
1: Oh, good. Well, that's uh, glad to hear that you've been. Um, you think we've been doing a decent job while you've been off uh, uh, pursuing other projects? But uh, it's good to have you back anyway, and looking forward to chatting about this interesting topic.
0: Well, yeah, thanks. It's uh, it's been a good one to come back on this because. We this this is one we've been talking about. We've got we've got a bunch of episode ideas that right from day one, which we've been thinking about since the beginning. And this has been one of them, which is to get a little bit into everybody's favourite next generation movie. Um <laughs> Insurrection. And specifically Michael Pillar's fantastic book about it, Fade In, which gives a lot of background detail about the making of Insurrection. It's an amazing book, which we'll talk a little bit more more about later, which goes into a lot of detail about the production of the movie. But what it does is it talks about the uh, cultural and literary uh, inspirations for what became the story of Insurrection, which of course was Captain Picard leading a, a, a crusade against this uh, alien race called the Sona, uh, who had paled up with uh, a kind of Starfleet Admiral to... Um, Force relocate this group of aliens called the Baku in order to get this technology, this you know, this um, healing technology. So it was, a, it was a basic story that has some really interesting historical allusions, principally Joseph Comrade's quite legendary novel Heart of Darkness, which uh, doesn't sound that cheery subject matter, Duncan, does it? Considering <laughs> Insurrection's quite... well, it was billed as the light... TNG movie after first contact.
1: It was yeah I mean you're right it's an unusual I mean there there are many things that are unusual about insurrection Uh, I think you're right Michael Pillars book is fascinating for kind of delving into some of the process that went on to kind of eventually give us that story which I think for a lot of viewers certainly for me wasn't maybe what they were expecting at the time, or possibly even what they wanted. But you're right, I mean, basically, he talks about the very beginning of the book, he talks about the earliest discussions that he and Rick Berman were having, where they'd basically sort of meet up for lunch, and they'd throw ideas around about what could go into this next film. Um, And Rick Berman had said he very much wanted to kind of emulate uh, the voyage home, that he felt that they'd kind of done the uh, fast-paced, dark, gritty kind of actioner with First Contact. And they wanted to do something very different because they didn't want to just do a kind of uh a not-quite-as-good First Contact Part 2 kind of thing. So they kind of consciously wanted to try and do a different kind of film with a different kind of tone and a different kind of... uh mood, really. So in that sense, I suppose it made sense getting Michael Pillar back in, who'd kind of been away from Star Trek for a few years, who'd kind of always in some ways maybe been a bit on the softer side, whereas, you know, Ron Moore and Brannon and Braga, particularly Brannan Braga, had been on the kind of wild, sexy, kind of outrageous side of things. So they got Michael Pillar back in. And, and so he went away to have a think about it. And the pitch that he came up with in the end that he brought to Rick Berman, the kind of first, very first pitch for the film was, um, he called it Heart of Lightness. Uh, and I'll just read the line from his book, he said, "I told him we'd be using a structure based on Heart of Darkness, but that the trip up the river would lead Picard and his crew on a very different kind of adventure." And just broadly, uh, for anyone who um, isn't familiar with Heart of Darkness, Heart of Darkness is a very dark, appropriately uh, short novel that Joseph Conrad wrote, based quite closely, it's believed, on his own experience or of, of uh, working in. Basically, he, he served on this boat called the Roi de Belge um, in the Congo. And there was a an experience where the guy who was there before died, and it was all a bit grim and, and miserable. But in the book, Heart of Darkness, it's all very much about uh, this character, Marlow, who tells the story, and he goes to relieve Kurtz and to find out what's happened with Kurtz. And and the, the sort of key crux of the story is that Kurtz has been in Africa uh, for a certain period of time. He's kind of lost his mind. He's gone native, as we would say. He's kind of um, hooked up with a group of the local people, he at one point fires on the on Marlowe's boat. He he gets the um, the local people to attack, you know, with the, with their with their weapons, and which of course we see in the film with uh, Data firing on the um, you know the Sonar and the, the and the Federation forces as well. But but so it, it's quite a sinister story. It's quite a dark story. It's a very psychological story about this man's sort of disintegration in the kind of, in the heart of darkness, in, you know, in this kind of uncivilised world is the idea. And there's this kind of constant Comparison between civilization on the one hand in London and kind of nature in Africa and the relationship between the two, but um, but anyway, so that was the kind of structure that uh, Michael Pillar originally wanted to bring was this idea of the journey upriver towards towards this kind of mysterious person who had kind of gone rogue or gone native or you, you know seemed to have turned against their own principles
0: um, and what that was going to entail. It seemed to be this real desire on the part of Michael Pillar to give. Picard a, a very sort of mythic hero's journey and that's that's something that I think he felt and this, you know this comes across in his in his book you know which is essentially one big memoir of making Insurrection which was written um, not a lot long before his death I think in 2005 well about a few years before that um, after Insurrection was made and uh, never officially published available free online and it it it's you know, a really interesting... The only other comparison I can think of with it is um, Russell T. Davis' The Writer's Tale for Doctor Who, which is a fantastic book, whether you're a fan of Doctor Who or not, um, about writing. It's amazing. It's an amazing series of diary, you know, back and forths. And uh, it, 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 there's some in some ways it's similar. And, it, and it, it's very much Pillar wanting to take Picard on a journey that he'd never been on before. Not in the movies, anyway. And I think there was a feeling that Picard had kind of being saddled with, you know, these kind of very dark, heavy stories um, with generations where he's haunted by the death of his family, first contact where he's haunted by the return of the Borg and the Borg Queen and things like that. And he wanted, I think, to have a real sort of hero's journey for Picard where he discovers something about himself and it all ties in with various different ideas about youth and regeneration and, you know, rejuvenation and old friendships and things like that. And it's... I think it's really interesting, the touchstone that he has for this. But I think what's even more interesting is how Insurrection didn't get there. I mean, when when you watch that film, you would not immediately think, oh, this is a little bit like Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. You know? <laughs> it, you know, that is not where you would go at all. So I think that the fact that... And, and the reasons why are charted through um, Fade-In in many ways... But I just think that, I think even after reading that book, there's a real interesting idea of how Picard's journey never quite went in the direction that pillar or maybe anybody else thought it would.
1: Well, he was always trying to kind of balance different people's expectations and different people's wishes. So, so he has Rick Berman on the one hand with his set of kind of criteria. Then they, you know, they send material they're working on, they send a treatment to Patrick Stewart and Patrick Stewart says he hates it and he wants them to basically go back to the drawing board and start again. And I think part of that idea of kind of losing a bit of the kind of emotional baggage for Picard came from Patrick Stewart. He was the one who said, um, I don't want to be haunted in this film. He, he used some kind of cricket analogy which the Americans were sort of barely able to understand, but basically say I want to kind of hit the, you know, basically hit the ball straight back at the bowler. Essentially, I kind of play it quite straight, play Picard quite kind of as a kind of straightforward, heroic character who knows what he's doing, who's in charge of himself, who's not going through some great kind of trauma or whatever. And then I guess Michael Piller was trying to struggle to sort of marry that with a story that was dramatic in some way and that had some kind of stakes, because obviously if he's too kind of teflon coated then then what are the kind of emotional stakes for the story and what he ended up with was this kind of bizarre idea which i think just does not come through in the film at all the the arc that he came up with for picard was what he called the clutter arc and this was after he'd kind of lost various other more dramatic more interesting arcs and the idea was that he felt that the baku had to kind of offer picard something that uh, was intrinsically valuable to him. And there is that one line in the film where Picard says about how people in the 24th century would love to slow down and their lives are too busy and so on. Which, interestingly, when uh, the Mission Log podcast talked about insurrection recently ken ray was sort of saying this didn't ring true because you you know we know in the federation there's there's no need to earn money everyone has everyone is essentially at leisure like where's this idea of this fast-paced society that they're trying to escape from coming from but what michael pillar was trying to get across was this idea that picard's life was cluttered and literally i think all that survives of that in the film really is there are a couple of scenes where there are slightly too many pads on his desk or it's a little bit messy in his room or something. And I think, you you know, okay, so if you've read the whole process and you've heard that for a year Michael Piller was working on this script and trying to get this theme in there and everything, you can kind of just about spot that in the background but it's 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 so subtle in the film i just think it doesn't read at all and unfortunately there was this one scene which is on the if you watch the blu-rays it's a deleted scene where picard's so busy trying to do his like read his pads and eat lunch at the same time that he spills his salad in his lap which is a kind (laughs) of um justifiably cut because it's not remotely funny and it's just kind of silly but um i think it kind of shows you one of the one of the things that's interesting about the book Fade In is is the extent to which Pillar is really struggling to kind of keep everyone happy and to try and find compromises and solutions to, you know, every time he comes up with an idea, someone raises a problem. It's it's Rick Berman or it's Patrick Stewart or it's Brent Spiner or it's um the the producers higher up at paramount or you, you know or, or then later on in the process they get budget cuts and they have to lose scenes left right and center to bring the budget down or you know there's an issue over the weather and they have to shoot somewhere else and that affects the script and so on so there's this kind of sense which i suppose maybe he wasn't so used to on the tv show where probably he had a bit more autonomy in some ways over individual episodes because really they they're bashing them out you know there isn't time for that degree of kind of interference and that degree of, you know, this person says, no, you can't do that. And this person says, no, well, I'm not doing that. And this person says so on. What I sort of got a sense of reading that book is the extent to which it almost just gets away from him somehow. This story kind of, he kind of loses control over it in some ways. And I think it's interesting, you know, you might say that, Heart of Darkness doesn't feature very heavily in Insurrection I mean that was like his sort of first idea um, and there were basically two treatments for this film which he goes into a lot of detail in the book and are very interesting which are almost kind of alternate films that we could have got one more focused on the kind of Fountain of Youth side and the and this um, old academy friend of Picard's who's the one who's gone up river and gone native uh, which you know has has some quite interesting kind of texture and drama to it the second one which is more the kind of he said kind of more heart of darknessy where data is the one who's gone native which does survive into the into the film to be fair but is dealt with quite briefly but in that version data would spend a lot of the film uh not himself essentially not you know in the state of amnesia um sort of dressed like the local people becoming this kind of you know mystical character to the local people um and i think maybe brent spiner had an issue with that because and various other people sort of saying well where's the data You know, he's not really data. This is data, but it's not data in a sense. And so you can sort of see like every time he has an interesting idea, someone raises a problem and stops him from doing it. And he has to come up with a sort of compromise and the film gets sort of compromised and compromised and compromised. And in the end, he ends up trying to sort of smash these two different stories together into one thing because they liked elements of both of them. And you can sort of see in some ways why, you know, why the end result doesn't really match the, the early ideas. But I think it's a shame because actually, for my money either one of those two original treatments that Michael Pillar wrote would have made a better film than what we got in the end if everyone had basically just stepped back and said all right go on then you write it and and we'll film it you know i actually think he had some good ideas there and you know he he's a good writer he knows his star trek but in a way the sense i got from reading this book was just the kind of crippling impact of all these people with all their opinions that have to be taken on board and and trying to kind of do a creative job when you you've got you know twenty five people looking over your shoulder the whole time.
0: I, I think I think that's the key point with it really, in that Michael Piller was a really it was a really good showrunner. You know, it, it, arguably he's the guy who made the Next Generation a success. You know, when he came on in season three of that show, he transformed it from this quite arch, you know, concept based Star Trek show that Gene Roddenberry had created into this, you know, family essentially into this show that was about character stories you know he created he brought into star trek the idea of focusing these these tales around the characters and you see in season three which is a really good season of, of tv you see it start to develop you see the characters growing you see all the interactions taking place and even though next generation never became serialized like deep space nine for example you know in the same way pillars mark was Im- almost immediate and it stuck you know and it carried on through the entire run of the show the problem he faced, I think, when he he stepped away after you know creating Deep Space Nine getting involved in Voyager, and then stepping away for for a while, and then they said, "Come and write the movie. I think there was a level of naivety on his part, I think, in terms of being able to bring that truly sort of creative showrunner vision to a to a movie you know which which has a, a completely different set of you know, rules and systems and boundaries when you're dealing with producers and you're dealing with marketing people and you're dealing with the studio who are worried about a gross box office receipt. You know, he didn't have any of those worries really when he was dealing with a network TV show. You know, it was a different world. So I think when he came in, I don't necessarily think he's, he's naive in the sense that he thought everything he wrote would be made, you know, directly. But I think there is an element of, I don't think he quite anticipated how much the central journey for Picard, the central link to Comrade you know, would have to be watered down significantly. Because when you read that, you know, elements of that first script, the one about his, you know, his old classmate Hugh Duffy up the, up the river and, you know, the Romulans being involved and this, you know, this character called Joss who's a complete idiot, you know, and he's a Romulan, you know, slick guy and all this. And all that, nothing like that. He's a, he's anywhere near insurrection. And you you see that and you think, wow, you know, he had to – he was forced into so many, like you said, so many compromises. And I think it's it's telling that the movie – kind of is trying to serve half a dozen masters and I think even though it's got good bits in and it's not nearly as bad as some people have said you know having rewatched it recently I enjoy it you know it's a nice light fluffy extended two part episode of the next generation basically there's nothing really wrong with insurrection as such but that really powerful dramatic core that calls back to you know 19th early 20th century literature with this potentially could have been a really powerful heroic mythic journey for Picard it's just not there and I think it is it is a shame because I think at this stage especially, I think Picard could have could have shouldered that. He could have shouldered that kind of storyline.
1: That's the thing. I mean, I have to say, my kind of personal history with Insurrection, when I when I went to see I was fifteen when Insurrection came out and I went to see it at the cinema. And I was a massive Star Trek fan at the time. I you know, I was because uh, 'cause DS9 was kind of wrapping up, I think, at that point, wasn't it? It was a kind of you know, it was kind of peak, peak Star Trek in a way. We'd had first contact at the cinema. And I guess the problem was for me I mean, like many people, I went to see Insurrection, probably off the back of First Contact, expecting something similar, and was seriously disappointed by it. And I think maybe there was a kind of difference of opinion, really, between, say, Pillar and Berman, to some extent, who kind of maybe saw First Contact as a bit of an aberration, as a bit of a kind of experiment with a different kind of film. And that and that therefore this would be more of a return to form. And you're right, you know, in many ways, it does feel like a kind of two-parter next-gen episode. And now, you know, with the benefit of time and nostalgia and so on, you can kind of take it on those terms. But, you know, for me as a 15-year-old, as far as I was concerned, First Contact was, that's Star Trek now. That's that's what we expect from Star Trek. Uh, it's not like what next-gen was when it was on TV. It's kind of become something, you know, slicker and faster and darker and more exciting and thrilling and kind of sexy and all these kind of things. And so it was a real disappointment. And and I think the other thing is, I mean, so, so my first instinct and my first kind of impression of insurrection was as negative as anyone's. I, when I've gone back to it, have liked it more. I mean, I think partly that comes with age. I think a lot of the themes in there speak to me more as a 35-year-old than they did as a 15-year-old. Um, you, you know, I, I think it is a kind of... <laughs> maybe a bit more of a sort of middle-aged story in some ways, uh, which, you know, which kind of makes sense. So I just think maybe there was this real kind of clash between what Pillar thought he was doing, which was kind of correcting an a erroneous course, almost, that had been made with First Contact and kind of getting Star Trek back on track. And maybe what people in the audience like me were thinking, which was that, you know, well, the new track was, that's what that's what we wanted now. And and suddenly this, this thing came out of nowhere that was... Um, was not what we were expecting at all. And I think the other thing is the humour in the film. I mean, it is consciously designed to be a funny film. The weird thing is, as you say, like Heart of Darkness is not a funny story. And I know this is meant to be Heart of Lightness, but at the same time, like if you're, the stuff that you're borrowing is not funny in itself, it's quite serious. The basic setup about the forced relocation, all, you know, the, the kind of key dramatic scene of the film... Which is the conflict between Picard and Admiral Dougherty is dead. That's a deadly serious sort of philosophical point in a sense. It's a kind of, that's real kind of morality play Star Trek going on there. It's not, it's not funny, but at the same time. So it, what it feels like to me is this: this attempt to kind of marry a kind of knockabout comedy with this quite serious, slightly sort of abstract moral political, philosophical issue. And it really doesn't work. And I think, you know, in Star Trek Four, you've got, you know, Nick Meyer wrote this well, Nick Meyer wrote the central section of the script, all the stuff in the in the past, which is all the funny stuff, essentially. I mean in Star Trek Four kind of got the stuff in the in the in the twenty third century, which is, you know, is not ostensibly so comic. But as soon as they get back in time, it's a romp and it's funny. And that film is witty and it's kind of, the the jokes really land, you know, you can watch it for the hundredth time and it still makes you laugh. And everything is pitched just right somehow. The comedy is all pitched just right. There's something about insurrection that very few of the jokes really land, I think. they It feels, it's got a slightly cringy quality. It's got a kind of dad joke quality. It's not witty in the way that the script for Star Trek 4 is. The script for Star Trek 4 is quite, you know, Clever, some of the jokes. I mean, if you think of say that scene where Chekhov's being interrogated and the back and forth, it's quite quick, it's quite sharp. You know, all the humour and insurrection feels a bit kind of obvious and telegraphed and kind of sort of unsophisticated somehow. And, and oddly, you know, one of the few bits that I think genuinely is funny is is that bit where you know where Data touches Riker's um, face and gives this look and and doesn't even have a line. And that apparently that was Brent Spiner sort of improvising in a sense and. There, there were various ways of doing it and the assumption was that he was going to have a line where he says, no, it's not as smooth as an android's bottom or whatever. And that's Brent Spiner's comic instincts basically saying, yeah, the way this is written is not funny. Uh, just let me, do, I'll do it with a look and walk off. And therefore you get a moment which, you, you know, it's sort of a rare moment in that film that actually genuinely is funny. Whereas I feel like it's sort of trying too hard. And I think for me personally, as that 15 year old boy in the uh, in the cinema. The, it was the this the moment that ki- completely killed the film for me was that bit with the bit with the manual steering column where the joystick comes up and Riker pilots the ship with the joystick, and it was just it just felt like such a cheap gag, and it's like we know that's not how you fly the Enterprise. We know this this doesn't make sense in context. It doesn't make sense in the context of the film. It's just a kind of desperate attempt to throw in a joke to try and say, look, we're being funny. There's lots of jokes here. This is a really funny film, and it just absolutely killed it for me it, it was you know cringy and i, I don't it, it doesn't bother me as much now i can kind of watch it and roll my eyeballs a bit but it's interesting as a teenager who i suppose took star trek very seriously i feel like that was the kind of that was almost a moment for me where my kind of star trek fandom faltered and from then on it was more fragile in a sense i mean i watched through to the end of deep space nine i watched through to the end of voyager but with Enterprise, I gave up after about sort of three or four episodes. And I sort of feel like that joystick was the moment where I was no longer the kind of committed Star Trek fan who would, you know, go to hell and back for Star Trek. I was, I, I, I don't know, I, <laughs> I was someone who was going to, you know, I, I, I want you to do this properly or that's it, I'm out.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think you would have found that with a lot of people, really. I mean, there's an argument, I would say, if you analyse ninety Star Trek, I think there's an argument that it... The the rot starts to set in probably around the the end of Deep Space Nine's sixth season, which was just before Insurrection, actually, because its last season had good spots, but season seven of Deep Space Nine isn't really all that. And then you're into the later seasons of Voyager, really, and they are pretty, you know, pretty poor on the whole, bar bar the odd few episodes, in my opinion, anyway. You know, and then you go into Enterprise, which has its has a couple of bright spots, you know, but really. The, you know, it, it wasn't, it had lost something really. And I think from this point on, it started to, it started to go down. It was a downwards downward incline really. And I think, I think part of the problem with Insurrection, you know, you, you've, you've spelled it out quite, quite well, I think. And I, and you you're talking about the, the, the differences in terms of comedy and, and, and all that kind of thing. Oh, weirdly enough, when I, when I've rewatched First Contact, which is, you know, universally applauded as the best next generation movie. And that, that is true, I think. But I I I myself have had a similar problem in a way about the fact that in a way that's two different films as well. You've got all the comedy stuff on the planet, with Zephyr Cochran and Riker and, and Barclay and all this kind of stuff. And then you've got all the alien style action, alien style action on The Enterprise. But the difference with that that film is they kind of make it work. There's 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 something in that in that script and the way it put it's put together. That it doesn't matter that it's kind of two films sort of wedged together for some of it. It still does work. Insurrection doesn't have that. Insurrection does feel like it's, you know, and that, and when you read Fade In, you realize this even more. It feels like that hodgepodge of all these different influences and different ideas that came from far more interesting, sort of powerful stuff that were watered down because the studio wanted, ironically, a sexier Star Trek, you know, and interestingly enough, when you have all the, the, um, you know, then the, they're reading the script and then they're looking at the um, the fight, you know, the first cut of the film. All the executives, before they get to some really sort of worrying test screenings, they're all saying, oh, it's the sexiest Star Trek ever. It's cool. You know, it's fun. And they they're so out of touch with what that film actually is, you know. And then when it gets into cinemas, everyone's a bit lukewarm about it, you know, and they're like, yeah, it's, you know. It's all right. It's not really, you know, it's not first contact, is it? You know, at the end. Of, and and yeah, okay. It doesn't mean that they had to do the same thing twice. And it's, it's a good thing that they didn't. But at this stage, you realise just how interested and obsessed the next generation seems to be. The films seem to be with youth and age. And they seem to be, you know, if you look at all four of them, in some respects, they're all about maybe the first contact to a lesser degree but generations of especially insurrection and nemesis have all got significant storylines revolving around youth and age and around the 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 growing pains in a way it, and and you know you look at generations with you know the fact kirk quite, can't quite let go of his you know his younger days where he's doing all these heroic things and picard losing his you know his nephew which is really tragic you've got insurrection with all the age um, stuff when they get on the Baku planet and, you know, feeling younger again. And then with Nemesis, you've got on, you know, who's the youthful, rebellious version of Picard. And oddly enough, some of the – it felt to me like some of these ideas with Hugh Duffy and, and, and Picard's youth – sort of felt like they were held over and grabbed with Nemesis and put into the pot, really.
1: I think they were. And, and also, say, the way that Troy is used in Nemesis, <coughs> you know, which is not great, but that whole thing of yeah. Troy being kind of the villain, sort of um, being interested in her. and uh, But actually, Michael Pillett does a much better version of that because he has a scene where she knees the villain in the balls, basically, <laughs> and starts yeah, him to get yeah. lost. But, you, you know, so at least it's a bit less grim and miserable than the way that all plays out in Nemesis. But there's that element, there's the element of... In one version of the script, I think it's the second treatment. Data has this kind of collection of of sort of simpleton robots who follow him around, and 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 this was this was pillar kind of desperately looking for a data plot because that was the problem with the first version the you know he had this idea of this story about picard and his old academy friend which is actually quite interesting quite dramatic but he really didn't have a story for data in there and he'd had this meeting with brent spiner where brent spiner kind of said i'm you know i'm just not really convinced that you understand my character and michael pillar was like how can you say that you know i, I ran your show for years and years and, and and so on but he said basically because he had never written Because all the kind of big data episodes had actually been written by other people and he just kind of polished them, that actually Brent Spiner and he didn't have much of a relationship. And that's the other sense you get is that weirdly, you know, Rick Berman obviously trusts Michael Piller, but people like Patrick Stewart and Brent Spiner and so on, there's a little bit of a kind of hesitancy around that somehow, you know, about whether he's kind of the right guy for the job. And I guess that's, you know, that's one element in which he's, you know, he's always trying to sort of please all these other people rather than kind of staying true to his own ideas. I mean, there's a great scene in, in one of the, um I think it must be in the first treatment, because c- I think one of the things that gets lost is that I always felt one of the problems with that film, aside from the comedy falling flat, is that the actual kind of central dilemma doesn't quite work. And that scene, the the, like the key scene in the film, which is is, you know, the scene between Picard and Admiral Dougherty in the Ready Room. And they have that kind of debate and they argue about, you know, whether it's the right thing to do or not. And he says we're only moving six hundred people and so on. When I saw that in the cinema, I wasn't totally on Picard's side. And I'm more on Picard's side now, watching it today i'm not quite sure what that's about but either way i don't think that scene quite works it's it's weirdly underpowered there's something about picard in that scene he's very kind of quiet he's very sort of you know in the west wing there was this thing about that the president being too professorial and that people wouldn't yeah. like him if he was too professorial he picard in that scene definitely seems too professorial that's his kind of and yes we know that picard is this kind of wise thoughtful guy and so on but in the previous film we've had a scene sort of in the same Performing the same function in the film. It's the kind of dramatic highlight. It's two people in a small room arguing back and forth. And it was this dramatic powerhouse of acting and, you know, rage and kind of emotion. And then the equivalent in in, uh, Insurrection just, it just kind of falls flat. And somehow Picard's argument to me doesn't quite land. But it's interesting going back and looking in Fade In, he writes this fantastic sort of alternative scene in the first version of the story there's this debate in the in the federation parliament basically and then there's there's various scenes that take place on earth and they go to the kind of parliament building and they see the the process of of democracy in action and so on and at the end this romulan who's the uh, sorry this not this romulan uh the at the end this vulcan who is the federation president called SeaMark has a kind of debate with picard about it and he says, uh, "These are the lines." It has C mark. What would you tell the mother of one of our children who may die without that ore? Because the whole story is all about this. It's it's not the youthful p- of youth thing. It's it's much more focused on this uh, medical technology. It requires this ore. And Picard says, "I will not trade the life of an alien child to save one of ours." It's it's much more straightforward. It's basically you know the Federation saying we're going to take this because we need it for our people, uh, and 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 Picard saying you you know we can't we can't put our people our needs above someone else's. It's it's easier to to get a grip on somehow. Um and then the scene in itself is more dramatic. Plus uh Michael pillar proposes to Rick Berman they get Ian McKellen to play this uh Vulcan yeah. card can square off against, which would oh, just have been amazing. That would have um, been brilliant. But then so, so he writes this really dramatic uh, what I think anyway, what seems like quite dramatic kind of moral dilemma where you can sort of see both sides of it and you can understand what's going on a bit more. Rick Berman's note on it it's all too political. Who cares? That's literally what he says to him, and you kind of think, well, what what is this guy supposed to do? Because this is a political story, and if Rick Berman thinks that politics is boring, then he he's not going to like this story because that's you, you know it, on one level that 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 is kind of a part of it, and this kind of corruption of the Federation is potentially an interesting story, but only if you actually are able to delve into that a bit and see what it's like i mean we see more of the kind of corruption of the federation in star trek six than we do in this film even though in this film it's kind of the whole crux of the story it also kind of makes me you know think what must rick berman have thought of deep space nine he must have just thought they were all mad basically. <laughs> well
0: well this this is exactly it rick berman famously didn't like a lot of what iris Stephen bear did on deep space nine and iris steven bear was a key reason, another key reason why season three of The Next Generation worked so well, because he worked very, very closely with Michael Pillar. They were, you know, they were they were good uh, friends and they were good collaborators. And then when Pillar came on to Deep Space Nine and co-created that, he, he basically gave, it, gave the reins over to Iris Stephen Bear, who then took it one step further into a different realm. So it's interesting you say that about Berman, because I don't think Berman is was nearly and he 's nearly the, the erudite learned man that michael pillar was and you see in in the way that he, he didn 't really ever seem particularly interested in the in the heart of darkness sort of inspiration. he liked the prisoner of Zender more, which was the idea that you know one of the early original ideas that um based on the the prisoner of Zender which is where a peasant is um brought in and, and replaces the rock you know the um uh, sort of a kingly sort of role and and then it's all it's all about the class system and, and things like that where and the idea for this was that Picard essentially gets replaced by uh you know somebody identical who and and the concern was well are we going to spend an entire movie not actually focusing on Picard <laughs> you know and so they, does they, they the same thing with data that's the really bizarre thing well then
1: having been given I mean that's the other thing is you know we, we talked about this kind of meddling but actually a lot of the notes that Pillars being given make perfect sense I mean there's a, there's a sheet of about 20 notes from Brent Spiner which are all quite insightful and basically picking picking out massive holes in his script that he hasn't realised and you know it does seem weird so yeah so he writes a version where Picard isn't Patrick Stewart basically isn't playing Picard then he writes a version where Brent Spiner basically isn't playing Data I mean you can kind of see why people were were kind of getting frustrated but I don't know it's this really weird one of the things I I sort of feel about reading that book is you you can't pinpoint one person who's kind of screwed it all up really there's just some something doesn't seem to be working do you know what i mean and and you can see why it it kind of ends up not working in the end
0: i think to some extent it's it's because the the strength of the conviction of the original idea wasn't held to because if you you think about it you know if we if we consider heart of darkness which was a story that was very much as you know as you described at the beginning it's all about this uh this man going up river in order to to find this guy who's gone off book later obviously borrowed um, for Apocalypse Now, if anyone's seen that, by Francis Ford Coppola, which, you know, even Marlon Brando's character in that, who's the rogue sort of Vietnam general, he's at, he's called Kurtz, you know, oh, Colonel Kurt, Colonel Kurtz, not General Kurtz. Although, interestingly, in, in, at one point in Fade In,
1: Michael Piller refers to the character in Heart of Darkness as Colonel Kurtz, which sort of makes you think, is he, you know, is he thinking of Heart of Darkness or is he thinking of Apocalypse oh, Now? Wow. There are other points where Apocalypse Now sort of seeps into some of his treatments and then gets dropped again
0: yeah possibly and and I think I so saw I think there's probably a blending of, of all of these you know in an Apocalypse Now it's Martin Sheen is essentially the Marlowe character this photojournalist who goes up the river in order to you know find Kurtz and starts to lose his mind and all this kind of thing and you know Apocalypse Now is, is a great movie but I mean it, it, as, as an inspiration for Star Trek it's an odd choice isn't it really if you think about it and and but but if you go if you go back to the original source material it is even though it sort of, it potentially sort of can be translated into a mythic hero's journey for Picard. At the same time, you know, Heart of Darkness has got a lot of political and sociological commentary in it, all about you know Africa and and the you know the central idea. It ultimately is 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 the British Western civilization more advanced? Are they just as savage in inverted commas as the Africans that they're you know forcing colonialism on? So really trying to transplant that into a Star Trek story could have been really fascinating if you'd had the Baku, and the Baku were, were envisioned in various different ways. You know, I think at one point they were little sort of pygmies with heads and, and things like that. They weren't at all these quite sort of, you know, tanned handsome farmer people that they ended up being. It reminded me of the El- Elorians in a way. They had that same sort of myst- sort of semi-mystical sort of humanity about them. But it, it, what you could have had with the Baku is this really interesting idea about which could have reflected about the Federation and and what it means to be the Federation. Is it civilized? You know, is it is it quite this this utopian sort of system that Gene Roddenberry has created and, and suggested and, and Star Trek has kind of lived by and questioning that? You know, at that the point you know and we've talked about this before on the show at the point where Star Trek was starting to bring in things like Section Thirty One and question you know, the morality of the Federation, whether or not they were actually potentially going into darker areas. You know, Dougherty should have been an encapsulation of that. You know, the, the, those scenes that Pillar originally wrote in the Federation Council could have got into the meat of that, could have had Picard standing up, you know, against civilization and saying, are, are we just a savage? You know, are we not going to these, these alien worlds and taking what we need and, you know, ruining these people's lives, destroying them? Why, why should we... Get on our moral high horse and suggest that we are civilized and that we're, we're you know we're the idealized I- ideal to follow, but you never get that interaction. Like you said, all you get is this fairly anemic scene between him and Darity, which you know he just says, "How many people will it take before?" and then and then that's it, and then he's off you know doing some of the action Picard stuff, and it's just it just doesn't encapsulate what the source material that Pillar was thinking about. Had. And it would, I mean, that would have been a fascinating and quite daring thing
1: for them to do, really. Definitely. I mean, I think Star Trek has always had this real kind of anxiety about colonialism because, you know, there are, there is obviously a way of reading the Federation as this kind of colonial power. On the other hand, you know, it's a utopia, it's a kind of idealized version. It's kind of quite important to emphasize the Prime Directive, to emphasize the ways in which the Federation is not a colonial power. And I think that's really what it comes down to, is that, you know, what what Pillar had at the back of his mind, at least in some of these treatments, was this idea of, a, you know, really a colonial story. And, and that's what Heart of Darkness is about, really. It's about the, you know, the famous line, the horror, the horror. It's, you know, arguably it's the horror of colonialism and the hypocrisy. And I suppose that is one thing that does kind of come through in the film, is the hypocrisy of someone like Admiral Dougherty, who sort of feels he can... Uh, stand up and be a kind of upstanding, you know, admiral or whatever. But at the same time, he's kind of, he's dealing with these, you know, these thugs, as they're called, the sonar, these, these you know, these people who don't have any of those principles. And certainly hypocrisy is a big theme that it, you know, is in Heart of Darkness. It's there in this kind of, right from the very beginning, there's this discussion because it starts off in London, the whole story is, is told in London, and this discussion of how London was once one of the dark places of the earth. You know, it's not in the kind of cosmic uh, scale, it's not that long ago that this kind of epitome of modern civilization was a savage place in itself. And there is certainly that sense of kind of you know is it right that the the colonial sort of go off to africa and think themselves superior and think themselves kind of morally superior and we have that in the character of kurtz because kurtz writes this kind of pamphlet they talk about where he starts off very much in this kind of idealistic mold uh talking about how they should use their power for good and they should recognise that they've been, you know, they've been given all this power over the local people and so on. And then at the end he he writes in this kind of moment of madness in the margin, Exterminate all the brutes. Which, if anything, reminds me in, in Star Trek terms of Goldie Cut in Waltz, where he has this kind of all these kind of sophisticated arguments as to why, you know, he was helping the Bajorans and pulling them up and so on. And at the end he's like, I wish I'd killed every last one of them. And it's that same kind of brutality and cruelty and sav- savagery, I suppose. So, so there's this kind of theme of hypocrisy, which does kind of come through, and, and the hypocrisy of the civilised world, which obviously does, you know, seep through into insurrection. There's also this idea, because one of the things that Conrad is kind of interested in, and I mean, we should say probably about Heart of Darkness, Heart of Darkness is a very controversial novel. It's an extremely racist novel. And to what extent the racism is Marlow and to what extent it's Conrad, yeah, you can kind of argue back and forth. But whether you think... I'm certainly not saying you shouldn't read it because it's a racist novel. I think it's a masterpiece. It's an amazing novel. But at the same time, it's inescapable that along with that depiction of colonialism is this real kind of dehumanisation of the Africans in the novel. But at the same time, so you've, you've got that in the descriptions, in the way that they're treated, in in some of the things that are said about them. But at the same time, you have this kind of constant emphasis from Marlowe of kind of recognising glimmers of shared humanity with them, of kind of recognising. He has this line, it was unearthly and the men were, and then he stops himself and he says, no, they were not inhuman. That was the worst of it. So so the, the kind of savagery of the local people is presented in you know quite a racist way. But at the same time, from Marlowe's point of view, he's kind of recognising, actually, this is me as well. You know, there's not that there's not as much between us as we think. And of course, in insurrection, what we get is something similar in some ways with the Baku and the Sanar, which is we get this revelation at the end that they're actually the same race of people. We've assumed that one is primitive and unsophisticated and sort of backward. The other has this kind of high technology and so on, even though they don't seem very nice. And then they actually turn out to be the same people. And actually, that's one of the elements of the story that, for me i don't know why, but particularly as I get older, that works more i mean we've talked a lot about the negative aspects of this film that there are there are bits of it that really work for me i mean i I quite like the relationship between Picard and Anige. I quite like all the kind of uh, new agey stuff which I hated as a teenager uh I think it's quite it's quite sweet and it's kind of quite thoughtful, and I actually really like this this aspect of the Sana'a and the Baku being the same race and having this kind of this traumatic family dispute almost. Um And, you know, at the end we have that scene where one of them is reunited with his mother and he kind of hangs his head in shame. I mean, for me, despite having said this film doesn't really work for me and I think there are a lot of problems with it, that moment really works for me. That moment uh, I felt really worked very well. So I do think there are kind of, there are themes in there that, that you know, we could say are borrowed from *Heart of Darkness*, and that do make it through, in, in ways that, you know, maybe are quite powerful one way or another. But you know, overall, it's it's a bit of a mess.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I think that's I think that is true. I think I think the Baku and the Sona revelation does work really, and I, th- I think it's it's one of those things where in the, they they had a lot of trouble with the climax of insurrection. I think with making it action enough you know there was there was a lot of conversations about the fact that it was there wasn't enough action in the script you know there wasn't enough actual you know people there was a lot of talking there was a lot of slow scenes you know they had to cut a lot of the Picard and Anish scene or there was talk about cutting a lot of the Picard and Anish when they were just walking through the Baku place and 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 I think I think what gets lost in a lot of that is this this central idea that you know, the, the, the thing is that the Baku planet never really feels particularly mystical. It never really feels particularly magical. And I think, you know, you get the hints of it, that, that moment where, you know, time seems to slow down and Picard says, how are you doing this? And all this kind of thing. And I wanted a bit more of that, to be honest. I wanted to feel like the Baku planet was genuinely this kind of, you know, one one in a billion sort of world where it was a little bit magical, it was a little bit mystical, it was a little bit spiritual. A bit like, I suppose a good analogy for it would have been like the island in Lust, you know, I know, I know Lost came after this, but, you know, the island in Lost had a very... It had its own sort of characterization. You know, it felt like this place that nowhere else on Earth was like this place. It was just unique. And I would have liked that feeling with the Baku planet. And I think there are hints of that. There are moments... You know, and I think, like you said, I quite like the Picard and niche stuff. I think, you know, I, I think she's she's done a Murphy plays a niche. I like her performance. It's really calming. She's very it's very like, good. Yeah, she yeah. is good. She's she's just. And you like can a, see
1: why he would fall for her as well. Yeah, she, you know, you, she, you totally get that.
0: Yeah, she's very alluring, and she's but she's sort of. Uh, uh, She's educated, sort of a and She's exactly the kind of woman you could imagine Picard ending up with, really. So they they do that in a nice way, and I think there are there are moments that I think it's a shame they didn't get the chance to do more with because they were they were trying to put in more action, they were trying to move the plot along, they were trying to create these you know action Picard or action movie moments. And for me, those are the bits that just, I'm not, I'm less interested in, you know, all the stuff where they're in the caves and they're shooting down drones or, you know, or, or the, the Riker stuff on the ship with his stupid joystick and the Riker maneuver and I'm going to shove it down the sonar's throat. All that. I'm a bit like, well, you know, I, I'd, if you're going to, if you're going to make it. Uh, you, you know you mentioned you brought it up the voyage home earlier and you what you said about that you're absolutely right and the one thing they didn't do with that is they didn't compromise and suddenly have you know a, a klingon ship follow them back in time and start trying to blow them up and all this kind of thing they kept it to being a character comedy and all the way through that it's just a character comedy you know there's barely any aliens in it there's barely any spaceships it's a character comedy what they could have done that with this if they if they decided that they weren't going to go down the mythic sort of powerful hero route with picard which they don't really do anyway if they'd have made it the, just a pure character comedy and emphasised those little moments like Brent Spiner's improvisation and, you know, that lovely moment where Geordie gets his sight back and there's that beautiful scene where he's, he's looking at a sunrise with that gorgeous Jerry Goldsmith music playing, you know, stuff like that, that would have made a better film. And yeah, okay, it might not have been as cool and as sexy and as box office, you know, explosive as they would have wanted, but... I think it would have just made a better rounded movie. And I think it would have been more in tune with what Michael Pillar did on the TV show. And I think would have wanted to do in this because, you know, when you read some of the scripts, the, I mean, it's, it's the, I think it's one of the best. It might be the best script, the best next generation movie script in a way. I think some of the dialogue is better than in any of the other three films but it just never quite executes in the right way.
1: Well, I think the other thing is, I mean, I don't know if it's just because I've just been, you know, reading Michael Pillars' book, but I think there are a lot of people who maybe contributed to elements of this film that don't quite work. And it's not, it's not. I mean, although the script maybe is a bit of a mess, and not all the problems are to do with the script. And I do think it could have been handled, that script could have been shot better, whether that's, say, the scene between Picard and the Admiral. You know, I feel that could have been kind of, pepped up a bit. It could have been maybe directed a bit more interestingly. I actually don't think the actor who plays the Admiral is very good. I know that they they wanted him for Ruafo, I think, or he was kind of second choice for Ruafo. And so they got that role as a consolation prize. But to me, he just seems very kind of hammy and and a bit, he, he doesn't really hold the screen opposite Patrick Stewart. Do
0: you know what? Funnily enough, I, I think they could have, if they'd have swapped those around, yeah. you might have had a better performance. F. Murray Abraham is that kind of corrupted More sort of subtle, federation yeah i think that'd be brilliant
1: definitely and i suppose that's part of the problem with, with they've got these two villains it's not really clear who is the real who's the main villain in this film and picard has this relationship with Doherty. picard actually has no relationship with Ruafo. it feels kind of weird at the very end where they have this kind of face off because they, there's been nothing built up between the two of them they barely spoken to each other you know whereas in a way it's Doherty that has been picard's kind of opposite number in a sense on kind of on the other side but you know he's kind of out of the picture by then but i think you're right you you know f murray abraham i think is good but it's quite a sort of understated performance the admiral is, is just a bit sort of hammy and and i don't i don't really buy his performance entirely I think there are lots of other elements though. I mean, even down to like the production design doesn't seem quite maybe what we expect. If you think about like the Baku village compared to even say, um, Chris Nunn and I were talking about when we talked about First Contact, the design of the kind of ramshackle kind of post-apocalyptic community in that. It sort of felt quite real. It felt quite kind of well realised. The Baku village just to me looks like a kind of it looks like a set or it looks like a kind of you know those kind of like model show home things before anyone's moved in it just it's too everything is so pristine and the special effects because they couldn't get the, the the ilm weren't available to do the special effects again the ships you know there's nothing wrong with the ship designs but they look they look kind of plastic because they look kind of too clean and too kind of everything is a little bit too sort of Plasticky somehow, and I think actually Michael Pillar made a very interesting point. There's a memo in the in the book where he said when they were getting down to shooting, he said he said make sure the cast don't the, the pace doesn't slacken because they're in such a beautiful environment. Because he was basically, I think, thinking they would treat it as a bit of a a bit of a holiday, and you know it does look gorgeous wherever they went in California, somewhere you know up in the hills or the mountains or whatever. It's uh, it's very attractive and scenic, but I think as a result, it's true the pace does drag i mean one of those scenes where the refugees are all kind of on the move they're sort of traipsing along you know they're not they're not there's no sense of urgency and i think one of the weird things when you think about heart of darkness heart of darkness is quite a difficult book to read it's very sort of dense it's very kind of intense and there's a real kind of atmosphere mood pervading it a kind of sick 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 uh kind of horrible tension and kind of psychological it it it, it's it's grips you it's got hold of you somehow do you know what i mean insurrection almost couldn't be more different there's no tension whatsoever there's kind of a real you know which works fine for some of the kind of nicer slower things and i do think there are moments in that film that are really nice um but it doesn't work for the kind of drama um and it's you know it's i do think part of it even is is down to like the the setting you know that kind of so so there's the the design of the Baku village there's the kind of those hills that they go up into i mean originally it was meant to be a jungle, and of course, you know if we're thinking about it in a colonial context, if you're thinking about it in terms of you know either heart of darkness or apocalypse now you know there was this it was this journey up river through the the dense jungle basically, and in the original version of the script, there were all these the so now we're doing all these kind of defoliation weapons to burn the trees to the ground and so on. You know, you can sort of see the, the, the imagery there would have been much stronger. They had a battle on the, on the beach, uh, which would have been quite dramatic. Originally, they, it was meant to be, you know, you talk about lost. It was meant to be a community by the ocean, which I think would have given it a bit more drama somehow. And they moved that because someone said, well, you know, if we shoot by on the coast, there might be fog in the mornings and it might delay shooting. So we'll, we'll move it to a lake instead of the coast. Well, you know, a community by the side of a lake doesn't have the same inherent drama as a community by the side of the coast visually. So there all these kind of little decisions that were made, you know, whether to save money or whether for this or whether for that or whatever, I think were kind of slightly chipping away at what might have given it a bit of character somehow. And that's why you end up with with some, a, a film where the action sequences feel a bit sort of bland and undramatic somehow um, and so what you're left with is this other sort of slower stuff which is, you know, maybe, you know, you know, on its own terms is quite nice but it doesn't, it just doesn't feel like it hangs together and it doesn't have, you know, First Contact feels like a very fast-paced, tense, gripping film. It kind of barrels along. This one, I know it's meant to be a comedy but I don't, that, that shouldn't be an excuse for it feeling so kind of slow and gentle and, and kind of flabby almost and I think that's part of the problem. It's just, it's just too kind of
0: coasting you know it's kind of coasting along it does coast it does feel like it's it never quite gets out of out of second gear really and i think i think i think what what i take from this film like like we've talked about you know we have we have knocked it a fair bit but we you know there aren't there are like we said there are things we like about this and i i would happily just sit down and have it on in the background insurrection you know it's 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 nice in that sense but i think i'll always look at it and think to myself what if you know what what if we'd have managed to have that that kind of powerful picard story you know and and because i think in some respects that they never they never quite got the next generation movies right in a way i think first contact is is the closest they got but first contact was the natural sort of sequel to the to the TV show really I mean you know the best of both worlds could have been a movie almost in itself you know it was that powerful it was that iconic it's you know it struck a chord in that show even though it was quite early on so you know First Contact made sense to do that story to pay off that with Picard because that was his most powerful sort of lingering story arc in a way even though you're talking about a a TV show that didn't really do character arcs in the same way but it did stay with Picard all the way through and they would come back to it at various points but it feels like everything else with the next generation films that they never quite knew what direction to go in. You know, the, the original movies, the original series movies, obviously they had different creative forces, you know, pulling at the at the strings. And th- there's there's not necessarily a cohesiveness with them either. But there's that sort of core solid idea of Kirk and Spark and Bones that that always seems always is is there. Always never seems to shift. It's always it's always that core, you know, with all the others playing around it. But next generation because it was a different setup anyway, you know, you didn't have in the next generation that much of a solid core, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't say quite the same about sort of Picard, Riker and Data, you know, it's not the same sort of dynamic. So it felt like that. They always thought that the key to making these films work was a strong, powerful story for Captain Picard. But aside from first contact, I just don't think they ever quite got that right. And I think, part of it is because they were trying to sort of partially and this was a lot of it was seemed to be Patrick Stewart's influence par- partly trying to reimagine Picard as an action hero you know in that same sense so it never quite feels like they they got that right with Picard in the sense of they they never quite seemed to understand where they wanted to necessarily take him and therefore take the actual crew in in in, in that way so i i i kind of feel if if they had have done this really sort of strong heart of darkness sort of story for Picard, would that have been his most powerful story? Would it have ended up being one of the most powerful Star Trek movies because you had a story that really got into the very core of Picard's morality and the Federation and him as this very different captain to Kirk? Kirk was a was a, a cowboy in space. Picard was a very moralistic, strong. You know, leader and, and he, he's, he's the guy who you would want to send out there to delegate with, with new alien races because he sort of encapsulates what you should be proud of about being a future human. So to have him go up against that very organisation properly would it have been his finest hour? That's that's what I always wonder. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think there there is a great potential for drama there for you know the idea
1: of him going up against the Federation Council. Kind of what he says at the end to Anish, she says, you know, I can't just. I'd love to just stay here and kind of you know throw in the towel almost, but I need to go back and make sure that that someone's kind of keep holding them to account in a sense. And I suppose, yes, there could have been that journey, that kind of realisation. I mean, in Heart of Darkness, what you have for Marlowe is a kind of, a sort of realisation, a, a, a looking at the world in a different way. Do you know what I mean? When he comes back from Africa and he comes back to civilization. He sees the kind of hypocrisy in in the civilized world. He sees you, you you know he sees it all as kind of a tissue of lies. And and at the very end of the novel, he himself is complicit in the lies because he goes to see uh Kurtz's fiance. But instead of she asks what his final words were, and his final words were this line: "The horror, the horror." Uh, but he can't bring himself to tell her that, so he says, "Oh, he he just said your name." So it's kind of like he's become kind of enmeshed in this kind of this hypocrisy, this lying, this kind of fiction of of the kind of civilized world there's a there's a line in the book uh, quite early on he says there's a taint of death in lies and so this idea of kind of the the power of these kind of lies and the kind of moral kind of, uh, corruption in a sense of, of an organization that will lie to its own people, which is what the Federation is doing in this story, which is what Dougherty is doing, you know, early on in the story where he's saying, you know, oh, okay, you, you've done your bit, um, you, you know, you know, you will go and, and, you know, don't worry about what we're doing over here. That, you know, there's an obvious cover up going on. And I think that doesn't really, It becomes a bit too easy. It becomes a bit too much like he he tries to argue with the Admiral. The Admiral says, no, the only solution is for him to take off his uniform, go down, get some guns, uh, you you know, sort of take matters into his own hands. And part of the problem is that feels a bit sort of cartoony and a bit kind of silly uh, and a bit too sort of obviously kind of action packed for what is essentially a more kind of moral political sort of grown-up story in some ways. I think the other problem, though, that the story has is because they married uh, the Heart of Darkness story with this kind of fountain of youth story, there's this kind of question all the way along about how much are people acting in character and how much are they not? And, you know, is Picard only acting like this because he's being kind of regressed in the same way that he's doing the Mumba and he's kind of, you know, acting quite silly in other respects? And I mean, it's very early on in the film that they that everyone starts acting out of character. I timed it; it's about fifteen minutes in. You start getting, you know, this extreme flirting between Riker and Troy. You get, you know, uh, Wolf oversleeping. You get all this stuff coming really early on, and I think that was deliberate. They wanted to feel that it was happening quite quickly, but it means that weirdly, Picard from almost the very beginning of the film seems quite silly. And if anything, he gets sort of more serious and more Picardy the more time he spends on the planet, which is almost the opposite of of what it should be. And I just sort of wonder whether partly this kind of this fountain of youth thing is it sort of confuses matters. I mean I think it's interesting, the idea of time and the kind of subjective experience of time, that is another theme that you could say is, is picked up on from Heart of Darkness because there is a line actually in Heart of Darkness where um, Marlow says of the the native people, I don't think a single one of them had any clear idea of time as we of the end of countless ages have. They still belong to the beginnings of time. They had no inherited experience to teach them as it were. So there's this idea, which was very common in kind of colonial narratives that the 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 sort of unsophisticated native people because they don't have watches and they don't have clocks and so on they they have no concept of time and that time was this kind of marker of civilization in a sense but of course, it's interesting because what we have with the Baku is they're kind of uh, like high-level mindfulness practitioners. Basically, they can essentially freeze time <laughs> just by you know by being in the moment. This was all the stuff that you know as a teenager I found slightly unbearable about this film. It seemed very new agey and, and silly. Uh, and these days, when I watch it, it it's more appealing to me, <laughs> and I can kind of understand why Captain Picard might might want to get involved in it. But then at the same time, you've got this theme of you know, as Worf says, uh, feeling aggressive tendencies of everyone kind of regressing and being more more childish and, and less kind of meditative and more kind of... Um, that's the weird thing. They all sort of regress into being teenagers and being quite kind of hormonal and, and silly. Whereas the Baku haven't done that. The Baku have almost mm-hmm. done the opposite. They've become very kind of wise and, and slow and measured and so on. Although interestingly, if you go back to Heart of Darkness, the kind of the idea of the kind of um, environmental change is something that's very much there. I mean, Kurtz has basically gone mad as a result of exposure to Africa. That's the kind of idea, which is another reason why various critics have felt it's a very racist novel, because it kind of, it sort of makes the whole, ex- it, it, it kind of makes one man's mental disintegration kind of stand in somehow for the relationship with this entire continent. Um, and it, it's it's kind of as if Africa is this kind of I don't know, this, this environment that's going to affect people, but, but it, in that way, and you're going to lose yourself. But they, they talk about it all the way through Heart of Darkness, you know, from the beginning, there's the guy who's measuring craniums and is saying, you know, of course, uh, your brain will be physically affected by being in that, in that environment. There's this constant reference to the temperature and the temperature, not just of the environment, but of the people, um, and the way that it's changing them. There's this sense that Marlowe is kind of, not exactly going mad, but is, is losing something of his kind of rational sense himself. So there's definitely that theme in Heart of Darkness as an insurrection, that this is an area of the world or an area of space where the kind of environmental conditions make people behave unlike themselves. But on the other hand, it's tricky to then have Picard making this kind of ultimate moral, reasonable, wise, principled stance if he's supposed to be not behaving like himself i just think it's kind of it's again it's these kind of two stories that have been smashed together and they're almost working in opposite directions
0: it's lacking that focus i think it's lacking that that understanding of of where the story's going in a way and, and where the character's going and, and and quite the internal sort of logistical rules of of what the baku planet is and, and you know what what powers are, are existing on this planet and things like that so it's sort of indicative really of how whatever vision pillar had doesn't quite line up with the end product really and Mm. i think i think ultimately that's that's what you have to take away from interaction really and and by reading fade out which i would recommend to anybody i think it it gives you that level of understanding about quite the ambition of this film and what it could have been and and how sort of Remarkable it could have been actually had it really not been watered down and filtered through and and you know and and compromised on and you know I, I I really believe this after reading that book and after watching it and after you know digesting things like Heart of Darkness, I think it could have been the most interesting next generation movie
1: mm.
0: I really do think that i think I think it had the potential to be something different and fascinating and challenging, and I think it will always be one of treks biggest missed opportunities, actually, in a way. Mm. And, and and certainly for the next generation. I think it could have been the signature next generation movie, but it kind of sums up the fact that, as I said, I think the obsessions that the writers seem to have about the the ageing gracefully of this crew – and the mm-hmm. middle age nature of this crew that they never seem to, you know, the, the, the original series crew always seemed quite comfortable in their middle age. You know, the writers seem quite comfortable writing for middle age Shatner and middle age Nimoy. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, so, they sort of just rested into these roles, you know, when these characters got older. There's, there's an argument that they're actually better characters in the 80s and 90s than they were in the 60s. You know, I, I, would, I personally think that I love the movies yeah. more than I do the original series by far. Well, they had to reinvent them. That's
1: the thing. Yeah, I, mean, I think a part of it is enough time had passed <coughs> in that instance. Certainly, when you get to Ratha Khan, I mean, maybe the motion picture is a bit of an anomaly in some ways, but certainly once you get to kind of Nick Myers, you know, reversioning of Star Trek in a sense in the Ratha Khan, enough time had passed that they had to reinvent these characters. They had to kind of acknowledge that they were not the same people that they had been. you you know when they were on the tv 20 years earlier or whatever i think the problem with next gen is they went straight from the tv show into the movies and so in generations there's literally no time gap in first contact it sort of feels like there's not been much of a time gap this is the first film i think where they do start to look a bit older you know everyone's got a bit more of a paunch there's a kind of you know there's a sense that they're kind of maybe a bit old for all this and picard even has that line you know we're too old for all this but at the same time because there hasn't been that gap and it's just like they go away for two years and you don't see them for a couple of years and then they come back and they sort of do seem a bit older I don't know there's something a bit awkward about it it's kind of it feels a bit more like the sort of elephant in the room it, it can't be the kind of main theme and there's this interesting issue where the, the fountain of youth thing nearly floundered because Rick Berman basically said to Michael Piller you can't you can't do this story where Picard gets younger because Patrick Stewart will think that you're saying that he's too old for this job basically and that Picard's an old guy and that he won't like that and we know that Patrick Stewart wanted to do all the action and the kind of kissing and all the kind of, you know, all that sex and shooting kind of stuff. So there's that kind of, again, there's that sense of his hands being tied constantly. Every time he tries to go in one direction, there's a, there's a problem and it has to be kind of reined in and, and compromised and so on. Um, and I think, you know, as a result, a lot of the kind of interesting sort of glimmers of more kind of knotty stuff that could have been in the film gets, you know diluted again and again i mean interestingly we we talked about how some of the themes that don't make it to the film carried on into nemesis uh you you know certain certain elements that, that carried forward into nemesis from the early treatments also i would say actually the the kind of heart of darkness story really comes back in star trek beyond and that again is a film where if you looked at the trailers for beyond it appeared to be a film about colonialism you have that line where idris elba's character says this is where the frontier pushes back and this sense that the Federation had kind of overstepped itself, that there was this kind of colonial anxiety. And and that doesn't really come across in the film. But I think in the character that Idris Elba plays, there's this sense of someone who's kind of lost themselves, who's lost themselves not only, not so much mentally, but kind of spiritually. And the weird thing is, I think that the accent that Idris Elba does is a kind of African accent. He doesn't use his, you know, he uses his kind of normal sort of accent for, um, you know when he's playing the 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 guy in his sort of 23rd or whatever it is 22nd century mm. self but he he becomes sort of he 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 in in portraying the alien he assumes this kind of you know recognizable sort of african accent which i thought was was a, a interesting choice in some ways but i mean but i guess kind of taps into that idea of you know, is this something resisting back against the kind of civilising encroaching of the Federation with their kind of pristine white starships and all this sort of thing? And you, you know, I don't know how far all of that goes, but there's definitely that kind of that kind of theme there. And again, in, in Deep Space Nine, in the darkness and the light, you know, if you think about the just the obsessive repetition of darkness and light and light and darkness and all of that, that comes totally out of Comrade. It's that. You know, that's one of the things about Heart of Darkness is it's such a kind of densely written novel, and there's these words that kind of acquire extra layers of meaning with every kind of um iteration of them in a sense. And and I think that DS9 episode is definitely playing on that. But I think the problem is that so all these things they're quite knotty, they're quite deep, they're quite sort of um uncomfortable, tense issues, and, and they're not gonna marry very well with this kind of attempt to write you know the one with the whales again only without yeah. the whales and and yeah. kind of make it a funny romp and and maybe that's part of the problem it's like you know you know they it just doesn't hang together really the different elements don't fit together in one film
0: no and it, it is it is a shame it is a shame but it's it's interesting those other possibilities you know for the use of darkness you made you made a uh, a comment on message earlier today, where you meant you said maybe that's where they got uh, Star Trek Into Darkness from as a title, and I think I said yeah, I don't, I don't think they were <laughs> looking that deeply. <laughs> with Star Trek into- but no, I, oh, I joke know. about See, it, no, but, no. <laughs> but but well, no, I look you out. You, you, it's a good point, really, because again, that's a film which is getting into the very sort of dark heart of the Federation with somebody like mm. Admiral Marcus, you know, who who could easily be an Admiral Darity, you know, that same yeah. kind of morally compromised guy who is prepared to do you know, some unspeakable things for the sanctity of the Federation. So it's, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's all whipped up into the same brew, really. Star Trek trying to flirt with these ideas, but never quite going up the river, I suppose. And I think the only person who yeah. actually did go up the river... Once you read fade in, is Michael Pillar actually? Yeah, because he, he
1: <laughs> and lost he, his mind
0: in the process. Yeah, you, yeah, there's a little, there's a little you know. bit of that, you know. There's a little bit, you yeah. know. Th- there's that famous documentary Hearts of Darkness about how Francis Ford Coppola went a bit crazy making Apocalypse Now, which is, yeah. you know, a fascinating story in itself. You know, the the, the the production of that film is as fascinating as the movie in many ways. So, you mm-hmm. know, in some respects, I think maybe anyone who tries to tackle this kind of you know, comrade esque story goes a little bit up the river themselves. And I think, I think that certainly happened to Michael Piller and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame because I think it, it, I don't think insurrection is necessarily what he's going to be remembered for, but I think he, I think he would be the first person to say that he wishes it had turned out differently. And I think I wish that for him too, really, because I think his ambition and his ideas were wonderful. And I think it's a shame we ne- we ne- never got that movie. Maybe, maybe in the, um, the Kelvin universe, or the mirror, or the mirror universe. No, not the mirror universe. <laughs> but, I don't know what um, a mirror Michael Pillow would be like. <laughs> he'd, he'd have an evil beard, probably. That's well, obviously. almost, almost yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe that film exists in another one of the uh, <laughs> Star Trek universes. Who knows? Yeah. Who yeah. knows?
1: In some parallel universe where. <laughs> he was allowed to to make one of his original ideas i mean <laughs> yeah. yeah no it's well it's interesting i suppose reading fade in you do feel <coughs> very sympathetic to michael pillar i think and you you really do get a sense of what a difficult job it is that he's taken on and how you know he's trying his best he's he's putting a lot of effort into to making everyone happy and you, you know and like you say mm. he, there is good dialogue in there there are you know there are lots of good moments in there you know, he doesn't kind of give up or anything, but he does, I mean, he doesn't ever say that he completely lost the plot, but he does tell this quite funny story about how, and I can't even remember what the reason for it was, but anyway, he wrote he wrote a scene about Beverly having a mud bath and a llama pissing in the <laughs> mud or something. And he <laughs> said that Rick Berman went home and said to his wife, I think Michael's just lost the plot. He just wrote about a llama peeing on Beverly. <laughs> and, you know, this idea that basically, and, and oh. you do get this sense it's becoming so sort of, trying to pull things out of the hat to please all these different masters, that it does become slightly ludicrous to some extent. And um, I mean, even say the, the Gilbert and Sullivan scene, which I'm not a particular fan of, that was Patrick Stewart's idea. He thought it'd be fun to sing some Gilbert and Sullivan. So, you know, okay, we'll put that in. It's just that kind of like wanting everyone to be happy. In a way, I sort of think the film would have been better if fewer of the people involved in making it Were as happy about it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I get. Yeah, you sort of need a a a big plot for data, maybe. But at the same time, if if he came up with a great story that was a Picard story and there wasn't a huge amount for data to do, is that really such a bad thing? I mean, do do you know what I mean? It's that kind of like every idea. No, you can't do that because it'll offend someone, or or someone won't like it. And it's just like you know. Well, what are you left with at the end? You know, all you're left with is the least offensive. You know the the thing that that the most people don't hate, which is not
0: yeah a way to <laughs> yeah. create something interesting no and it's not it's not the basis it's not the starting point to make anything creative either ever mm. you know ever if if you're going into something trying to trying to please everybody, you'll end up pleasing almost nobody so it's 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 one of those things that I think insurrection is summed up with really, and I think the one thing I regret the most after everything I've said is that we never got that llama pissing on Beverly scene. <laughs> <laughs> that 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 is it. That is what I that is what I want from the alternate universe insurrection. <laughs> yeah. More than anything especially else.
1: especially since we know that the llamas were you know really breaking the budget and, and <laughs> they were concerned about how many of them they could afford. I mean yeah. you know very expensive llamas needed yeah. for this film. Um, it is a bit. I mean it is a wonderful book. It's you know I mean many people have said this this book is better than the film that it's that it's about, yeah. and I can certainly you know sort of see the logic of that. Yeah. It's uh, it reminds me a bit of. Um, well you mentioned the the uh movie about Apocalypse the making of Apocalypse now. There's also Lost in La Mancha, um, mm. the documentary about Terry Gilliam's attempt to make his Don Quixote movie, uh, which at the time I don't know if he, has he, has he finished it now? He's, he's done yeah, it. he's, he's done it now. Working yeah. on it. He's done it, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, but I mean, for many years, it was this kind of un, unfinished uh, sort of disaster, really. He tried to make this film and, and all we had was the kind of aborted making of documentary, which became yeah. a whole kind of amazing story in its own right. But just to get that sort of sense of the way that decisions are made, the, the bizarre reasons that that come into play for making certain decisions, um, you know, the the extent to which all the cuts that have to be made just to save a bit of money and someone goes through the the whole script and is saying, well, you know, if we move this location to here or if we have this take place in the corridor but not the transporter room, it'll save... You know, and the the figures are astounding. You know, it'll save, Mm. I don't know, $500,000 or something for that kind of, you know, day shooting. It's kind of... it, It is fascinating just as an insight into the kind of world of Hollywood and movie making and the kind of decisions that go on there, quite apart from in relation to to this film... I suppose what I felt, the, the funny thing is, you know, I, I, I said that my opinion of Insurrection has gone up since I watched it as a teenager. And I feel like in this episode, I've just been bashing it constantly. I think part of that is because of reading Michael Piller's book, unfortunately. I mean, mm. I hadn't watched Insurrection, I hadn't rewatched Insurrection very many times. And I came to watch it a couple of years ago when we were doing the From There to Here rewatch. You, were, you know, I, I went through and watched all of Star Trek, basically. And I I, had, I must have seen it in between then and having seen it in the cinema, but, not, you know, not many times and, and not that recently. And when I watched it then, I was really surprised how much I liked it. I was expecting this complete car crash of a movie and actually I found it quite charming and I I enjoyed the bits that I like about it and I, I felt like the things that I was expecting to find annoying about it, I didn't really mind as much as I thought and I, I just felt, you know, yeah, it's it's not going to be on my list of top films anytime soon but it was a perfectly enjoyable you know quite charming sort of sweet little film then going back to it this week having just read michael Pillar's book or reread michael Pillar's books i read it a couple of years ago i don't know i found it much harder because i felt like i was constantly looking for the film that i wish they'd made instead mm. so in a way that whole feeling that i had going to see it in the cinema as a teenager of well this isn't the Star Trek that I've been promised this isn't what first contact was like this isn't you know what 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 I thought I was getting in a way is kind of reactivated by reading that book so so yeah I would say absolutely read the book it's a fascinating book but uh maybe don't read the book and then go and watch the movie straight after
0: no because <laughs> it
1: might it might affect
0: your uh your yeah. viewing pleasure in that way yeah I think I think that's good advice that's sound advice really but uh but yeah definitely read Fade In definitely it's uh, it's a fascinating insight into a piece of Star Trek history and um yeah, it might. It will definitely make you look at interaction in a, in a very, very different way. And also, if you if you want to read Heart of Darkness, but you
1: actually don't fancy reading it, because I know Tony, you were messaging me in the week saying, "God, I'm finding this hard to get through." And, yeah. And I have to say, I Joseph Conrad is probably my favourite writer of all time, and I find Heart of Darkness almost unreadable because it's <laughs> it's so densely written. It's so kind of murky and, and grim and sort of they, they, it has such a sort of pervasive atmosphere that it actually yeah. makes it quite hard just to for your eyes to to get the words off the page but what i found is there is an audio recording on audible who of course sponsor our show and track them mm-hmm. uh, of kenneth branner reading heart of darkness and it is absolutely i think probably the best audiobook i've ever listened to i mean i you know i, I like kenneth branner anyway but it's a really brilliant performance and it's actually much easier to take that story just sit down close your eyes listen to someone telling you the story rather than trying to read it with your eyes somehow i don't know i, I found that made a massive difference so mm. if you're interested in hearts of darkness i cannot recommend that audiobook highly enough
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna try it. No, you can't beat a bit of Kenneth Branagh and can't I, be uh, a bit of Kenneth Branagh. No, you it's, can't. I have to say he's he's in a fairly uh, understated Kenneth
1: Branagh territory. Mm. It's it's not kind of you know Hammy Hamlet or anything. <laughs> kind of, you know, it's, it's a bit more sort of 21st century yeah. Branagh. But um, it's it's really good, really good, and. Uh, has a real kind of really captures that kind of atmosphere i think it sort of feels almost like a ghost story Ooh. uh you, you know which is it's kind of the setup in the story because it is you know it's a story within a story it's a you mm. know it's kind of a campfire story almost on this boat so
0: yeah it fits very well with that mood so yeah check that out then and read In as we say get a bit more information on uh insurrection uh, and um yeah it's uh it's a fascinating way to to reevaluate this film but um well it's been it's been really good uh podcasting with you again, Duncan. We're going to do it again soon and um, possibly with Clara mm-hmm. as well. Um, that ne- be nice. Yeah, next yeah. time, which will be great, getting the three of us on. But, uh, it's primitive culture bingo. <laughs> yeah. that would be, yeah, well, next time we meet up, we'll play that actually, actually play it in real life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yes, but uh, primitive culture bingo, uh, Insurrection, Michael Pillar, Joseph Comrade and um, Urinating Llamas isn't all we're talking about this week <laughs> on... Uh, <laughs> It's hard to imagine, isn't it? (laughs) I know, it's a shocker. (laughs) (laughs) How do
1: they find anything else to talk about?
0: (laughs) So let's have a little listen to what else has been happening this week on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, The Ready Room. I should have had my mom buy me
1: everything, because now it would be worth the time, like the goofy Spock helmet. But I remember hooting (laughs) at those things back in
0: the day. (laughs) You know, like... They think we're just stupid. That wasn't in the show. You don't have a real phaser wouldn't say Star Trek on the side of it. Standard orbit. I cannot find anybody in print saying, We're going to the standard Enterprise Delta to honor the Enterprise as being the first ship of the Constellation, You know, the first the five-year mission ships to come back relatively intact with its crew and ship intact. And it was not, a, some fan did not just say this. Somebody
1: in the production somewhere, and someday, by God, I will find where this came from because, like, we didn't all have this mass group hallucination about it. Somebody put a, felt the need to say
0: everybody's wearing an Enterprise patch now, so you know that's past us. To the journey. So, if we're going to have a more Vulcan-like Tom in Tuvam. Presumably, Tuvom would have to meditate, and he would have to go somewhere to meditate. I'm thinking he wouldn't just go to his quarters to meditate with candles like Tuvok does, or he wouldn't go sit on some rocks on a planet somewhere. He would go in the holodeck and lock himself in his Camaro and meditate with the radio on. What would be playing on the radio? Vulcan opera. Ah, <laughs> that sounds horrible. Warp 5. Shows the the gestation of the Borg from their first cube and the diamond (laughs) ships. Just transwarp conduits. Floating on the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) Little Borg spacemen. Yep. Before they were fully immune to the outside uh, elements, so they had little space helmets, Borg space helmets. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter at... Duncan at Barrett's Books and myself Tony at Black Hole Media and you can also find me hosting my own podcast the Xcast and X-Files podcast if you type that into Twitter and Facebook. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended already. Right.